Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Backstage With podcast, taking you behind the scenes with your favourite actors and creatives in the world of musical theatre. I'm Mikey Worrell, and today we are heading to New York for a bit of a Broadway special. In early January, I went to BroadwayCon, the annual convention for theatre lovers. It's a huge event. It's basically Comic-Con for musical theatre. There is a lot of dressing up. I was not prepared for how many people would do it. And then I walked into the Hilton Hotel in Midtown, where it was being held. I was going to register, and there was a Dr. Dillamond just sitting against the wall, chilling, waiting for their friends, you know, whatever they were doing. And that kind of sums the whole thing up. Anyway, there are lots of talks and events that happen over the whole weekend, like Q&A panels with the biggest shows on Broadway, like Mean Girls and The Share Show and Be More Chill. And there were smaller, more intimate panels as well, with maybe one or two actors talking about their process and how they create a character after reading a script. It was really interesting. There were karaoke sessions, sing-alongs, workshops, loads of really fun things for fans to get involved with. But it was only when you were in the room that it hit you that you are metres away from these Broadway personalities that you used to listen to in your bedroom. It's really cool. So if you like musicals and Broadway, I mean, you're listening to this podcast, so unless you're here by mistake, of course you do, then I'd really recommend going if you can afford it and you fancy three days of just complete musical mania. One of my favourite things I went to over that weekend was a talk about all the Disney shows that have been on Broadway. There are ten. There are ten. I could name eight before I got stumped. I'm, oh God, I'm not gonna do it for you now. But the one I didn't know was actually a Disney show, Peter and the Starcatcher, who knew? Thomas Schumacher, the guy who actually runs Disney Theatrical, even said, so few people knew that that was a Disney-backed show, that that was the best New York Times review they ever had because the critic didn't know it was Disney. Anyway, I digress. There were cast members from nearly all of the Disney shows that have been on Broadway, like Patty Murin from Frozen, James Monroe Eigelhart, who was the original genie in Aladdin, Susan Egan, who was Belle on Broadway in Beauty and the Beast, but also the voice of Meg in the film Hercules, and Ashley Brown, who was the original Mary Poppins on Broadway. Ashley told a brilliant story about let's say a problem they had on the day of the fourth preview when the show was just about to open in New York. She told it so well, I'm not sure I can do it the same justice, but I will try. So if you want to hear that, stick around after this episode's interview. Which brings me on to the reason you're here. After one of the panels I mentioned, I went up to the person who was hosting it, actress and Broadway podcaster Elana Levine, to tell her how much I love her podcast, which is called Little Known Facts. She is so kind and generous with her time that she actually came all the way to my hotel on the Upper East Side two days later to sit there and let me ask her questions for nearly an hour. Here's what happened. Hi, Alana Levine. Hello. Thank you for coming to the Upper East Side. It was a journey. I don't (laughs) always travel up here. Do you live in Manhattan? I actually live in Brooklyn. Okay. We moved from Manhattan a couple of years ago. And I actually love when I come to the Upper East Side because I feel like I'm on vacation. Okay. It's so otherworldly for me. Yeah. I'm always meeting people who are staying in lovely hotels and feeling that side of things. This isn't so bad, is it? No. The Lowell. Let's, let's say thank you to the Lowell for hosting us in this beautiful, beautiful room. Absolutely. You are the host of the wonderful Little Known Facts podcast, which I love. 
I listen to it in London when I'm like walking to my job and just, you know, hanging around. And to be sitting here in a hotel in Manhattan with you now is so surreal. So Uh, thank you. Of course. Thank you. Let's talk about your podcast first and foremost. Why did you start it? I guess I started it because I felt like I was having, you know, having been an actor for most of my adult life, I thought I was having all of these incredible conversations in dressing rooms with one wonderful actor and actress after another. And I thought, God, I wish people could really hear the real non-polished, airbrushed, face-tuned version of what it is to have this life, even at the highest and most successful level, that we're constantly asked to kind of put out the very shiny version of it, which makes the rest of us, which is, you know, I straddle both worlds. Sometimes I'm in it and sometimes I'm watching it and feeling like I wanted to really present honest accounts of what it is to have a life in the arts. And I wouldn't have chosen any other life. And I don't think there's any way to stop somebody from having a life in the theater or film or television or however you want to express yourself creatively. But I thought it would be really fun to share a very realistic, hilarious, and at times poignant account of a life in the theater. And because I've been an actress for so long and on Broadway, as often as I've been on Broadway, my catalog of friends is pretty shiny and amazing. And I always say to people, like, the one beautiful thing about getting older, there are many things that I'd like to stop time for, but the collection of unbelievably talented, beautiful artists that I've met because I've been doing this so long has been pretty extraordinary. So that was really, I mean, why a podcast? That was a fluke, and someone just asked me if I wanted to do a podcast, and I thought, okay, I'll try it. Why not? Any creative endeavor, I'm up for the adventure. And an actor named John Slattery, who's a dear friend of mine from from Mad Men and Broadway and other places that people would know him from, was my first guest. And once he came on, once you have someone notable and wonderful who gives you the stamp of approval, I just went through cast by cast, my Charlie Brown cast and, and my Seinfeld cast and just anything I had done. And now it's 125 episodes later, and it's John Slattery or Julianne Moore or Patti Lapone or John Benjamin Hickey or Judy Kuhn, all the people on stage in the West End right now from America were my earliest, earliest episodes of the podcast. Your episode list is a mind-blowing list of names. I remember the first time I encountered it, I was on holiday last summer. And I was like, Octavia Spencer, Sarah Jessica Parker, and I would just kept going. And I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. Um, but the first one I listened to of yours was Laura Haywood. And I just, I just loved that conversation because I don't know if you'd met before you did that interview, but the, the relationship between you was so warm from, from the minute you started. I just loved it. Well, Laura Haywood, who you're mentioning, her Twitter handle is Broadway Girl NYC. And I, I think she found me on Twitter. I don't remember exactly when it happened, but it would make sense because I'm a Broadway person and she's someone who's, you know, created a career out of her passionate fandom. She is there or her happiest place is kind of shining a light on people or things on Broadway that she is really inspired by. And I was so honored to be one of those people. And I'm very new to social media. She is not new to it. She was really one of the first people to kind of um, commandeer it for good. And so I thought it would be really, as a, a, along with the list you just mentioned of actors, and every once in a while I also like to have brand new actors to the scene so that I can kind of capture their story at the beginning 
And then, you know, I had Lucas Hedges on after he did Manchester by the Sea, but he hadn't done his first Broadway show yet. So it was kind of an interesting moment to talk about his wanting to now do more theater, and now he is. But Laura was great to have on because she really is an example of there are... And Jen Tepper, who is now producing Be More Chill on Broadway, but she has written this incredible collection of, of history books, really, called The Untold Stories of Broadway, And I think it's really showing people there are a million ways to be involved in this industry that we love. Maybe you can't reach, you know, certain notes and and you're not going to be like the grand dame of musical theater. But if you love theater from stage management to press to all sorts, for to you, you love theater and you're doing interviews with people you admire backstage to share your passion in that way. So it's an incredible thing to kind of meet someone like her who's like, I'm not a performer. But I love it, and I'm going to use every place I can as a megaphone to share how much I love Broadway. And so I thought she would be a cool person to have on the show. Absolutely. And I think the reasons that you've just said are exactly why, of your list, she was the first one I picked, because she speaks to people like me who are probably don't want to be performers, but want that sort of insight into how she became this big Broadway girl Twitter phenomenon almost um, within the fandom. But that's the thing, like a lot of times when I talk to people, I realize that so much of it is timing, right? And luck and right place at right time. Like Laura had a really natural instinct and a very comfortable relationship with social media very early on. And so for her... Twitter was like a really easy place to live. It came naturally to her. And I think I think for everyone I talk to, you're hearing the ambient sound of like beautiful china being placed in this beautiful lounge that we're sitting at. It's a library. It's gorgeous it's at the Lowell Hotel. And there's someone replacing glasses and, and anyway, but that's so much of all of it, right? Like when the opportunity happens and you seize it, are you ready for it? So Laura had this like natural ability and then Twitter happened and she seized it and then created what she needed and wanted from it and for it. And I think every single one of my performers was ready when the opportunity happened. And that's the part you never know when it's gonna happen. So you just have to be ready because it could happen at any moment. And actually, one of the things I've loved listening to from your interviews is those stories of when things happened. They were just on the brink of giving up or they were just on the brink of leaving the city and then their big break happened and you think, oh my God, they nearly missed that. In an episode that hasn't come out yet, but that I just finished doing with Patty Murin, who plays Princess Anna in Frozen. She's incredible and gives such both vocally brilliant and comedically hilarious performance like to be able to do both of those things and then so poignant at the same time but she was really like feeling she'd come to a place where maybe it's time to stop like it's not going to happen for her in the way that she wanted it to and then randomly she was at a wedding and Christine and Bobby Lopez who wrote Frozen and many other incredible things said to her at that wedding like we have something for you and they couldn't say what it was but she went to her husband and she was like, I guess I can't quit yet because they have, they have something for me. <laughs> and it turned out to be frozen. So you never know. I saw her do it on Saturday. I mean, that part was made for her. Yeah. Like without a shadow of a doubt. And, and whether or not they specifically wrote it with her in mind or when they kind of saw her, they clocked it and they were like, oh, that. The fusion of person and part is so 
effortless yeah. in her performance of it, knowing how hard she worked on it. Obviously, it wasn't effortless, but it just seems like, oh, yeah. Like, who else could ever be Princess Anna originating that role? Nobody. Nobody. So, Nobody. anyway. Um, it's Monday. We should yeah. talk about the fact that we are both in recovery mm-hmm. from the whirlwind weekend that was Broadway Con. Yeah. For the listeners at home in the UK who may not know what that is, do you want to just talk a little bit about it? Are there any, is Comic Con, are there other conventions, um, fan conventions in the I, UK that I are guess, like this? I guess there are. I mean, I think everyone's heard of Comic Con. Right. But I think the concept of Broadway Con to most people is completely alien. Okay. There, there isn't a West End Con. Do they know what Disney World is or Disneyland? I think it, I think it's safe to it's, say they do. It has a universal vibe. So it really is, if you love Broadway, it really feels like it's the Disney of Broadway because it is a place where for three days, nonstop, in a huge convention center... Um, Room after room is filled with Broadway artists, passionate lovers of Broadway, and panels on every aspect of the industry, as well as all of the new shows coming to Broadway have um, truncated versions of the show being performed for audiences. There, you know, I just did a 20th reunion panel with the original cast of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Which we will talk about. We'll, we'll talk about. But it, so there are like really kind of emotional reunions and there are hilarious performances. And then what's amazing is that all of the Broadway people who are available to do it, who are working or who are beloved in the Broadway community, come and have interactions with the fans all weekend. And it's just suddenly the wall between fan and star is gone and everyone is just communing together in this very loving environment that is all things Broadway and then there are booths and booths and booths filled with think of a huge marketplace and an outdoor marketplace and stalls with everything related to Broadway paraphernalia and memorabilia everyone Kids and grown-ups are wearing costumes of their... There's a lot of cosplay going on. I mean, just go Google it and look on YouTube because it's um, it's mind-blowing, but it's non-stop. And so for me, I hosted a panel on, you know, how to create a character. It was called From Page to Stage, and it was me, Melissa Errico, Anthony Rapp, and Donna Murphy. I came to that one. That was awesome. And then we did one, How to Make a Cast Recording, with Bonnie Milligan, who just starred in Head Over Heels, Belting Bonnie, they call her, um, and the head of Ghostlight Records, and they produced one incredible cast recording after another. We did something called How to Turn Your Passion into a Business, which is where I believe you and I chatted for the first time with people who have taken their creative talents and made them into businesses that are Broadway related. So one woman has a company called Scenery Bags who makes the most beautiful clutches and purses and bags out of retired Broadway show curtains. And so when you buy your bag, uh, you look inside and it'll say which Broadway show your bag was made from. And the truth is, I would buy this bag just because it's beautiful and they work for men or women, but the fact that she is uh, recycling in the way she's doing and then a percentage of all her sales goes to a fund here in the U.S. that sends kids to theater who would necessarily get to go. So th- so there you go. Like The kind of mind-blowing creativity that people have taken on to take their passion and make it into something good in the world is amazing. And so, yeah, I mean, I did a million of those, and then I did an autograph signing, and you just meet people from all over the world 
who share this common bond, which is something about musical theater lyrics, speaks to them deeply and makes them happy. And then you can sing along with like, in a karaoke night for Be More Chill, the stars of Be More Chill, George Salazar, and you know, are showing up to sing with these kids. And they're, it's like the Beatles have arrived. Like people are freaking out. But the, the downside is, as you described, like when it's done, you're so tired, like you can't even... The fact that we're putting sentences together, I'm really proud of <laughs> it's us. It's remarkable. <laughs> that our brain it? is working. <laughs> yes. And that's the thing. It really is the, the happiest and most loving place on earth for three days a year. You mentioned the, the wall between fan and star coming down. I hadn't really thought about that before I got here. And then I walked past Jen Colella in the corridor and was like, this is weird. Hi, Jen Colella. Yeah. Someone I, who I've never seen in a show, but have listened to over and over again. Well, Come From Away is about that and that show is it in the West End now? It opens Do you say on the West End or in the West End? We say in the West End and on Broadway. And on Broadway. Okay. So she is on my podcast and and your listeners will get to know a lot about her listening to that. But the sort of mission statement of that show, aside from being an innovative, beautiful musical, is that every one of those people have taken the spirit of the characters they're playing in real life and try to create in their own lives um, a mission of paying it forward with goodness and good deeds. So for a show to be as entertaining and moving as it is, it, it, it's about 9-11 and a tiny little town in Newfoundland that ended up absorbing like, I think like 40,000 people. Yeah. Some I, I may be misrepresenting the number, but all these flights were diverted. They couldn't land or travel in certain airspace. And so this small town took in these refugees, basically, for the time that they were there. So between the poignancy and the realness of the 9-11 moment that we all remember, and then what's going on in the world right now with refugees, um, it's such an incredible story of people opening their town, their homes, and these relationships that continue even since then. Sorry, I feel like I'm plugging. No, We're here to plug. We, we love Come From Away, and it's perfect timing. <laughs> you know, Charlie Brown was also a pretty small cast, and it, was, it, it turned out to be such a big experience for such a small story. And I feel like Come From Away is like that, too. It's a very small cast for a musical. A lot of them played more than one character effortless. Like, you cannot believe it's the same person. And you come away feeling like it was Les Mis, like there were 100 people on stage at, in terms of how impactful it is. So, yes, Jen Colella, who is the lead in the show, She's playing the pilot, is just on every level a superstar. The other thing I wanted to talk about, the, the creating a character panel, that was the first one I came to. Mm-hmm. And I think it was for, for a few people just because it was early on Early Friday on morning. in the con, yeah. For me, just being in the same room as, as yourself and Anthony Rapp and Donna Murphy, I was, I was silently freaking out, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> from yeah. when I was 20 and I, I went to see Tangled and that was the first time I, I'd heard of Donna Murphy. Oh, her voice. Her voice. Yeah. She's just... But that's what's so cool, right? Like, a lot of people are there because they know her as the wicked stepmother in Tangled. Yeah. And then there's a whole other audience there who has seen every, you know, passion and, um, you know, her, her relationship to Sondheim is, yeah. is extraordinary and Hello, Dolly. And so... There, there are different generations and mm. different worlds of people who all want to see the same person for the same for different reasons. Yeah, well, she was actually the first show I ever saw in New York was uh, Into the Woods in Central Park in 2012. Wow! And I got to see her in, in as the witch and Jesse Mueller 
and all these other people whose names escape me right, right now. Right, but who've all gone on to have really big yeah. careers, and those were for for Jesse. That was the beginning. Yeah. You know, but before just, Waitress, before Beautiful, and Tony after Tony after Tony. I know. I just feel so lucky that that was my first experience of theatre in this city. You know, Anthony Rapp got cast as Charlie Brown right after he finished Rent. He was in London doing the British version of Rent when he auditioned for Charlie Brown. And he, like, made his audition tape, like, in a hotel room in, in London somewhere. And so for me, as someone who loved Rent so much and listened to that cast album religiously and saw the show many times, to then be cast opposite Mark Cohen, basically, who was in my AirPods all day long. <laughs> well, they weren't AirPods yet. My earbuds at the, the time. The 2000 equivalent. Exactly. He would warm up every night for Charlie Brown with songs from Rent because they just sat just in the perfect place vocally for what he needed to do in our show. And the idea, I just remember being in my dressing room some nights going, what is happening? How come I'm hearing, you know, Mark Cohen is about, it was heady. Like I was at Broadway Con in my own dressing room <laughs> on Broadway. Like I was having that same feeling. And so to... To sit on a panel for me, and I think this is true for everyone in Broadway, we all lay on our beds listening to cast recordings as children, whether they were the actual albums on vinyl and then, you know, tapes, CDs, and now on your smartphone, right? So it's just wild. Like, no one, it's, it's a rare thing. The only person I've interviewed so far out of like 130 interviews Jeremy Jordan, who was in Newsies yeah. um, and on the TV show Smash. I don't know if it came over to where you are. It did, and, it uh, did. You know, he's Supergirl here in America right now. But he's like a big Broadway star and was nominated for a Tony for Newsies and has the voice of like a God-given voice. He did not grow up like watching the Tonys or, you know, it wasn't until college for him that he sort of found himself in the world of musical theater and catching up in some ways, so that he was in college hearing the last five years for the first time, the Jason Robert Brown, and then in the movie of the last five years. That happened very quickly for him, and his was more of a different story than most of us who were reading liner notes religiously. But we can't all have the same story, can we? No, that's what makes it all so interesting. Exactly. I do want to talk more about your good man, Charlie Brown, but... I want to go back a bit further. Sure. So there's an episode of your podcast where Rory O'Malley interviews you. Love him. So we know all about how you got started and you were coming over to the city for classes. And didn't you see someone you knew from school at a show and that was how you got an agent no, or something? I, oh, yeah. I was doing a show. Oh, you were doing a and, show. And uh, one of those like off, 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 off Broadway uh, backstage tryout, you know, back. Is Backstage Magazine there too? How do people no, start we hearing have... about auditions before they have agents? Uh, I think it was the stage newspaper. Okay, the same thing, yeah. right? Like you look through it because you don't have an agent yet and so you do anything you can. Student films and yeah. terrible plays in basements. Um, and so I was doing a terrible play in a basement <laughs> um, and I hear a voice come backstage saying, Alana, is Alana here? And I was like... Boy, that sounds like the voice of someone I went out with when I was like 11 in summer camp. And in walks Stephen Hirsch. And he was my boyfriend when I was 11 in summer camp. Boyfriend meaning like we ate lunch together. And he had become an agent. And uh, we had 
you know, just this amazing reunion. And he was such a young agent and I was just starting and he couldn't really sign anybody yet to the agency, but he was like, I'll start sending you out for things. And then I got the first job he sent me out for, which is a TV series. So it made great news for him at his office, beginning of my career working with the director, Robert Altman. And so, yeah, that's how it it began. My 11-year-old boyfriend. Oh, yeah. what a great story. He now has a husband. Okay. <laughs> so it all worked, and, and so do I. So it all worked out for everybody. <laughs> um, and then how did you go from that to making your Broadway debut in Jake's Women in 1992? I, um, I was doing an off-Broadway play that was Daryl Roth, the American theater producer's first New York, her debut as a producer, actually. And her son, Jordan Roth, who's now one of the biggest producers in history and the world, I remember him like, you know, he was like 15 at the time coming backstage and just, uh, just I can see him so clearly as like a young theater lover, but the son of my producer. And now it's just incredible what he's doing. But I auditioned for the understudy of Jake's Women, which was this Neil Simon play. And uh, that's how it started. And then they actually let me, I ended up getting cast. That's how I met the casting directors. And then I ended up coming in. I was only reading for casting. And then they really, really liked me. And they ended up bringing me in for Neil Simon and Manny Eisenberg, the producer, and uh, Gene Sachs, the director. And suddenly I was cast. And Alan Alda was the lead. And many of the people in that show have remained my friends. And that was in 1992 like just out of school, like it was a big, exciting moment. What is going through your mind when you are brought into the room with Neil Simon? I think the thing that has always really worked for me is that at the beginning of my career, I did not really know who anybody was. And so I it's how I got cast with Robert Altman. I just went in and we just started talking like two people. And I think I... Think I found him to be so funny just in the room and I'm naturally humor is my go-to when I'm nervous and sometimes it works for me and sometimes it doesn't but I just was like I I don't know I just thought he was hilarious and and nice and I thought I'm gonna do my version of this play like I read your play I have a thing about me that feels very right for this part and I think I started with like I feel like I get it but if you think I'm on the wrong track, like, just stop me. But I feel like this is this is how it should be. I think I said something like that. And then I was done. And he was like, I guess I guess she's right. This is how it should be. Like, it was just very, um, you know, when you're young, you're so fearless. Like, yeah. So I go back to my waitressing job. Who cares? Like, a, there was no expectation of success. There was only a desire to act. And so if I had to keep doing other things to pay my bills, which I fully expected to do because 99% of people do that and get to do community theater if they're lucky and happily the idea that I wouldn't have to do that never even occurred to me I just wanted to act and be in a community of people that that loved storytelling and do you remember where you were the day you found out that you'd be making your Broadway debut in this play uh Gosh, I wish I did. It was so long ago. I remember calling my parents. I don't remember where I was, but I remember crying and just saying to my parents who really helped me do a theater program in college and 
you know, as a parent to spend a lot of money or help support your child's dreams, but sending them to college and knowing that like a theater degree is not like a, a business degree or, or a psychology degree, right? Like they're, they're helping you fulfill a dream that may not end up going anywhere. And I just felt like I was so aware that they had sacrificed so much to help me do this. And so the idea that I could repay them, and by the way, they came to 7,000 performances and all of their friends came and every show I've ever done, my parents become like show mascots. <laughs> like they will bring group, if the show seems like it's floundering at the box office, they're like, we got it. And they'll bring like group after group after group. They always have a relationship with the group salesperson because they bring in like this organization that they work with and this group of friends. Like it's hilarious. So you want to cast me just because my parents are going to keep your show running. That's amazing. They're the sweetest. Yes. Oh, wow. And from Jake's Women, you did The Last Night of Ballyhoo. Mm -hmm. What was it like doing that show after doing Jake's Women? It was amazing. Um, I'm trying to think. So Charlie Brown was after yeah, so Charlie Ballyhoo. Brown. Okay. Yeah. That was um, Alfred Urey, who wrote The Last Night of Ballyhoo, and the film Driving Miss Daisy. I feel like I met all these older men who I ended up having a really incredible relationship with because they were mentors to me and very respectful and really saw my desire to learn and so they took me under their wing and they became very paternal in that way and Alfred who had this fascinating you know take on being Jewish in America like southern Jews are very different than New York Jews like there are all these different traditions and cultures and German Jews versus you know Poland like fascinating so I felt like he was an extraordinary teacher for me, and I learned so much. And he let me, you know, my character was obsessed with Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind and wrote, journaled all the time on stage. And I ended up writing every night for real on stage. And for a while, Alfred and I were going back and forth with using my journals that I was writing as this character and maybe doing something with them afterwards. It hasn't happened, but it just became the richest experience. And having person after person come in and talk to me at the stage door about what it was like to try to assimilate into American culture, not just Jewish people. Like, theater resonates with everybody. So you think you're telling a story about a very specific German aristocratic family in America, but you're talking about everyone trying to find their way in a new place and hold on to who they were and fit in where they are. And every play you find yourself blown away by how it resonates in ways you never, ever expected, in such non-literal ways. So that show, there was just this outpouring of love for it. It ran for a very long time, and it just brought the most interesting people into my life. It just sounds like the come from away of its day. It was, it, the non-musical yeah. version of it, absolutely. So You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown was your first Broadway musical, is yes. that right? yes. I don't actually know how your journey to that show happened. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, I, I had never done a musical before. I only lived for them as a voracious... My appetite for being in the audience for these things is uh, never tires. And I never expected to be in a musical, and it wasn't on my radar. Michael Mayer, who directed You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, had seen me in a play many years prior... And there was something about 
the character that I played that just had stayed with him and kind of percolated over the years. And when I was, when I got the call from the casting people, who, by the way, I've done five, four Broadway shows, the same person cast everyone, which is just crazy, like that fairy godmother uh, person in my life. So Michael said, I want to see Alana Levine. They called me and I was like, I told my agents, I don't sing. That's so sweet. Tell them thank you. And I can't wait to come see the show because I love it. And they kept calling back and really insisting. He knows your resume has no musicals on it. You're not fooling anyone. Don't worry. It's not like you say you can juggle and then you get there and you really can't juggle or you speak a language. You know, actors always write special skills on their resume that they do not have. And they'll like learn it quickly the day before. But I really couldn't imagine it. And I went in. It's so crazy. Stephen Lutfak, who went on to write A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, the Tony Award-winning musical, was at the time a coach for auditions. Someone put me in touch with him, and he helped me find the song from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, I Want It All, that Veruca sings. It landed... I mean, I wasn't a Broadway singer, but I could carry a tune. I learned it. I figured out some very funny things to do with it. It worked. When I got the call back, I called them again and said, thank you so much. I really can't imagine doing this, but how thrilling for me to get to like have one Broadway musical audition. And they were like, no, come in. We, we will make this work with her, but she has to come in and sing a song from the show. And I did. Um, I sang Schroeder. I came up with many comedic bits in order to distract from the fact that I didn't really know what I was doing vocally. They all laughed. And then suddenly I'm, you know, with a vocal coach and with the musical director and all of these people. And um, I was in the show. Like I always say, if you get a chance to do a Broadway musical, just say yes. Like, you got to do one. Yeah. And that was my one. And it was a good one. And then you found yourself in this town in Illinois doing the tour before yeah. Broadway with, with yeah. Kristen Chenoweth and, and Anthony Rapp. You and must have been Wong. You must have been pinching yourself. I was. I mean, listen, I was pinching myself, and then when they were sleeping, I was up all night. I had, you know, these Kristen, Anthony, Roger Bart, uh, who's also now, you know, a Tony winner, they had all grown up doing musicals with great confidence at this point. So I, you know, I don't read music and I hadn't danced. And so Jerry Mitchell was our choreographer, who's now a Broadway director, too. I think Kinky Boots maybe just finished in London. He did this past weekend. Yeah. So he directed that. You know, they all really, I stayed after school a lot. Like I had a lot to catch up on. And so I was pinching myself, but mostly I was so grateful because often in the middle of the night, one of them was helping me. And the generosity and the bringing me with them and making me feel like I could do anything, it is on the backs of their generosity. It's like they all had these angel wings that I was able to float on throughout that experience. And Stanley Wayne Mathis, who played Schroeder, who's one of the most beautiful hearts beating on the planet, so that by the time we got to Broadway, as promised by every head of every department in that show and that cast, I was an ensemble member, full stop. But it took sleepless months to catch up. And it was sort of like joining the Olympics and you had never like run before. And suddenly you're running, you know. But you have the best trainers possible. Yeah. 
and yeah, you're working with like Olympic greats. And I was, and you are, you know, they always say like, you want to play tennis with someone who's a much better player than you. And I also found out that I can sing eight shows a week. Like I actually had something inside me that Michael Mayer, the director, intuited and he was right. And it, it was extraordinary. I think I got sick once. I, I, I didn't know I was a belter. I was a belter. I had such strong vocal cords. I used to pretend when I was young to be an opera singer, like in a very silly way. But it turns out like, not that I have the voice of an opera singer, but I have the power that when I'm not just mimicking it, like I can really do it and reach it because it was in there and I didn't know it. And I just had to learn how to access it. So I was like a race car driver who had never driven before. Like it was really, and look, in no way do I have the vocal, the beautiful vocals that any of my castmates had, but Lucy was a super comedic character. So for a comedic character, I had the chops to sell it. But little known facts, I just listened to it before I came down to meet you again. Yeah. It's it's not an easy song. It's high. It's so high. So to do that eight times a week when you, you don't think you're built for it, that's hard. It was, and they added, you know, they added like a huge finish to that song once we got to Broadway because I'd mastered, it was sort of, you know, the original Little Known Facts, it just, and these are little known facts that, you know, it was very, in the, I think 1967 was the original. The song didn't have a big ending, a Broadway finish. And they gave me that and suddenly it went from an adorable song to like a big number in the show and to have your own kind of moment like that in a musical is very thrilling, like a proper finish. Yeah. And I think that, like, I earned it. I finally earned it. Because my, my instinct was to run off stage as quickly as possible and let the real singers come on. Like, ap- I was apologizing all the time at the beginning until Michael was like, I cast you because you're who I want for this part. You're not a replacement. You're not the understudy. You're originating the role of Lucy Van Pelt on Broadway. It's yours. And I remember just like taking that in and going, thank you. And also I've got to show up for him. Like he's betting on me. There's a lot of money that goes into these shows. So you feel really like you have a lot of people's investment that you feel very worried about. So I wanted to do right by them. You said that they changed the number. Mm-hmm. Was that Andrew Lipper? Because mm-hmm. I read that he, he sort of was brought he in He wrote to... My New Philosophy yes. for Kristen, Game Changer, and a song that, you know, young theater performer hopefuls sing all over the world. I mean, it really has become um, an iconic song. And he wrote a new ending for Little Known Facts for me. He revamped and added a new beginning for the intro for the musical. With Michael Gibson, there was an orchestrator and our conductor, Kimberly Grigsby, which was huge because she was really one of the first female conductors. So that was a very cool thing to have at the center of our show. She's gone on to do incredible things. Yeah, there was a lot of reworking of Clark Gessner's original lyrics and, and compositions. Because they changed Patty into Sally, didn't they, essentially? There was no, you know, they're really, yes, yeah, there was no Sally. And so they kind of created this this new character with the permission of Charles Schultz's family and, and Schultz himself. And so we ended up, at the beginning of rehearsal, we sat around a room for like four days with every single comic 
that Schultz had written and basically created the book for the show ourselves. Wow. It was incredible. And then, you know, the thousands of people who are in licensing. I mean, that's a big machine, the Peanuts Syndicate. It's huge. It was like my first introduction to, like, corporate art, you know, like the 7,000 people who have to sign off on something. Yeah. Um, we're in our little haven of like musical theater, like, let's do this one and let's try this one. And, you know, going through strip after strip and then it had to get approval. But we really, we all wrote it together, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, that we had the liberty and freedom to write the script for our characters so on rare. Broadway. So yeah. Rare. Yeah. Amazing. And then to have the reunion 20 years later this weekend. Yeah. I mean, that must have just been overwhelming. It was overwhelming. What was overwhelming was we have seen each other over the years, but we're all super close. It was a very small cast, and we all remained, you know, BD and Kristen sang at my wedding, and I was just at BD's wedding, and, and you know, anytime Kristen's at a concert that I can go to, I'm there, and, you know, my kids and I are with her backstage, and she, it's wild, the history we have. But what hasn't happened is us be being together in front of an audience like that. And so to have like a thousand people show up and, and there was so much love in the room. And for us to be able to say thank you for what they've given us these last 20 years, um, it was really extraordinary. And we love each other genuinely. Like we are each other's chosen family. And um, it was very beautiful. I'm still not quite over-processing it. We have 7,000 pictures that people keep sending us and fan video, and, and um, the video is on the BroadwayCon. If you type into Google, like, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, BroadwayCon reunion, most of the, the panel is they, they filmed. Oh, great. It was, it was going out live during the event, so you can see it. You can feel the love even through the screen. Your Twitter and Instagram notifications must just be insane yeah. this last weekend. Yeah, and I've been trying to literally answer every one because I feel the same way. Like, I was in it, but I'm watching it, and I'm feeling it, and um, it's really special. We were talking just before we started recording this mm. about company in the West yeah. End. Yeah, And you did a panel at BroadwayCon about how to make a cash recording. Yes. And I believe you've had a sneak peek. Yes, I have to tell you. I hope I won't get in trouble, but Warner... Chapel Records uh, did the cast recording for the company and I got to hear the album because they were just listening to it as it came in from the studio and first of all just hearing Patti Lapone singing you know I felt like I could see glasses breaking all over the place because she reaches these notes like effortlessly and magnificently but everybody rise I started shaking the way it works I guess is they record and then Sondheim is giving them notes, sending the notes back, and they've been going back and forth, and I think they're getting very close to the finished version. But to be even like a, a fly on the wall of the process of how something that will last, this is going to be a monumentally important recording. To have a woman at the center of this show, and then having Patti Lapone playing the part, she's, you know, the iconic Elaine Stritch part, the torch has been passed. She is, you said you saw it. I've seen it twice. London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is one of the most extraordinary, like hair on the back of your neck rising. I started sobbing. And this wasn't like even the finished mix. <laughs> this is like the choppiest version of it because it's not finished yet. 
So, so because of that, it was like I could hear every instrument. Everything was still equal, like the mix hadn't been done. So the bass, the drums, Patty, all of it, every artist on that album, I got to hear at like a hundred percent before they're kind of figuring out the levels. So that was incredible too. Like every musician and every singer, amazing. Is it normal for in this process for a, a recording to go back and forth so much to its First of all, composer? I don't know enough about it. Like when I, you know, usually everyone's in the room. Mm. If they're alive, they're in the room. I don't know if Sondheim was in the room in London and now they're just going back and forth doing notes afterwards. But, you know, Melissa Erico was on one of my panels and she had just done an album called Sondheim Sublime. And I know that she has, you know, she was showing me tons of emails going back and forth with him about, A, just history of the songs, what he hopes for in the interpretation of the song, and then listening before, you know, she has a very unique relationship with him. And I imagine in general, if you want to do Sondheim, if you can get him to be a part of that process, kind of amazing. But so I don't know. I don't know what the norm is, but I imagine it is if the lyricist composer is living, you need him to sign off on it and yeah. want him to sign off on it. I saw you tweet after that panel that it was really emotional and, and wonderful. Just just talk to me a little bit about what was discussed because I didn't get to go to that. I was at a different one at the time. So Bonnie Milligan, Head Over Heels is an incredibly beautiful, powerful musical based on the Go-Go's music. And... The thing that was really incredible about it, it had at its center this plus-size actress. And in the world of the show, she was the most beautiful princess in the land. So many of the cast turned our ideas about what beauty is meant to be on its heels. And Bonnie has really been a shining star that was plucked from this production and is now on her way to, you know, they call her Belting Bonnie because her belt is extraordinary. Bonnie grew up in a, you know, a trailer with her family in a small town in the middle of nowhere America without a lot of bells and whistles in her life and really very far from Broadway. And trying to get her hands on anytime she could, a cast recording. Money was tight, so she mostly listened in the library or she'd go to her local bookstore and they would have headphones sometimes. And so I asked her what it was like after all of that and a very kind of intense childhood to hold her own cast recording in her hand when it was done. And on the panel, she just started to cry and weep and kind of try to express what it was to have a dream that seemed so impossible. And so many people along the way told her, there are about two kinds of parts you can play. And so for her to be the lead and to be, you know, her song is beautiful and to have young people and, and audiences come in night after night and just go out of their minds that she was singing that song. And she is beautiful. She's extraordinary in every way, but there are so many people telling us who we are and what our limits are. And she broke through it. So it was beautiful. And for her to get to talk about that at Broadway Con, where you have so many young people who are being told, you're not pretty in the way that we think pretty should be. And her going, any size, any person can make it and make your own rules. And she is evidence of that. Exactly. I just have to say thank you. Of course. Because not only have you given up your morning to come here and talk to me, but 
the the how to turn your passion into your business panel was just the best thing I I went to the whole weekend. Oh, and that's just, so great! I had so many ideas, and it was just so inspiring to sit there and listen to all these these amazing women who've who've done that yeah. and are sitting there saying. I was in this job, I wasn't happy, I had this idea and I've done it. It was incredible. Yeah, take a risk. So thank you so much. Of course, of course, my pleasure. It's been such a pleasure to meet you and to pick your brain for 48 minutes. Yes, (laughs) yes. And I am really, you know, thrilled to meet you and and I can't wait to see what you do with all all of your talents. And we hope to see you in London. Yeah, we'll go backstage together. We will. Thank you so much. Oh my God, you're welcome. You can find Alana's Little Known Facts wherever you get your podcast. She has a new episode out every week. I don't know how she does it. And her guests are the creme de la creme of Broadway and TV and film talent. Honestly, if you scroll down that list, it is insane. Before the conversation, I promised I'd tell you the Mary Poppins story Ashley Brown told at the Disney on Broadway talk at BroadwayCon. What happened was she woke up feeling quite sick on the morning of the fourth preview her understudy hadn't even started rehearsals i don't think the understudy had even had costumes made and she thought oh god what am i gonna do so she called the company manager who was like get yourself to the doctor obviously so she went to the doctor and the doctor sure enough said yep you've got a virus there's nothing i can give you for it you're just gonna have to ride the wave so she had what i believe the americans call ginger ale i don't know what that is maybe it's ginger beer I don't know someone please tell me and went to work and tried to get through the show I mean that is commitment right so she's in the show she manages to get through the top of act one and then she does uh, practically perfect and she said she had to take the number literally word by word because she felt that volatile shall we say And then it gets to the Act 1 finale. Spoiler, I mean, it's been like 14 years. If you don't know what happens at the end of Act 1, then more for you. She's doing the Chim Chimney duet with Bert and then flies across the stage and is all, bye Bert, take care of them for me, or whatever. And at that point, she turns back round facing the back of the stage and her cheeks just go, you know what I mean? And she's looking. She's looking where, oh my God, I am going to be sick. Where can I do it? She's looking at the floor. No, can't do that. She's looking at the children. Oh my God, she can't vomit on the children. And then as she's going across the stage, her eyes catch the sight of a bucket in the wings. And she goes, oh. So as soon as she is unhooked from, you know, the magic that makes her fly, she runs over to this bucket and pukes her guts up. It's disgusting, but that's what happened. And in that moment, the stage manager is like slow motion running over to her going, no, your umbrellas are in that bucket. I mean, what a great story. It continues. Thomas Schumacher and Cameron McIntosh were then went to her dressing room in the interval and were like, can you get through? Do we need to cancel the show? And she's like, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. And sure enough, somehow she got through act two. That ended up being a really long story, and if you're still with me, congrats, you made it this far. We're nearly there, stay with me. If you decide to book yourself a ticket to next year's Broadway Con, British Airways can fly you into JFK and Newark Airport. Newark is my preference, it's quicker into Manhattan. But anyway, there are loads of routes, BA.com, have a look. That's it this week. If you love the podcast, please do leave a rating and a review wherever you listen to it, and subscribe if you haven't already done so. 
Next time, we're going backstage with Jonathan Bailey from the West End production of Company. That was such a fun interview. I cannot wait for you to hear it. It will be out soon. Till then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.